Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Marcus, who have we got with us today? Because you are not Alina. We've got Robbie McNiven showing us something quite different today. We're going back to the about 1750s, the 1780s, and we're doing the British uh, Light Infantry in the American Revolution and the Seven Years' War. This is brilliant because, it's like you say, this is a um, patch of history that usually falls in the cracks with us. Uh, Robbie's uh, a black library author, if any of you are fellow geeks and like your Warhammer and Warhammer 40,000, but he's recently published a, a book on the uh, British Light Infantry and I found it, it's an Osprey, found it a really good read. Ooh, there we go, visuals. Uh, and um, yeah, it's something that I keep coming back to because 95th Rifles, sharp, and the British Light Infantry were invented down in Shorncliffe in the 1800s? Apparently not. So this is where uh, we're going to be learning some stuff today. Brilliant. So kick us off then. Where are we going to start? So let's go start off with the American Revolution, if we can, Robbie. Um, was the British Army uh, badly trained for fighting in that war? Um, that is a common misconception, and you can kind of see why it uh, builds up over the years. But I think... Well, it is a misconception. I think that actually, in reality, the British armed forces are fairly well equipped when it kicks off in 1775 uh, to deal, uh, at least at a tactical level, with uh, their colonial enemies. The most important thing to remember from this period is that the British are not strangers to fighting in North America. You know, the Seven Years' War slash French and Indian War um, in the mid-1700s sees them engaged across really across North America from Quebec to Florida. And the people involved in that sort of mid-level officers at that stage are coming back as, you know, major and lieutenant generals during the revolutionary periods, um, taking the experience that they have from that style of warfare in North America and uh, really inserting it into the expectations of what they're going to be dealing with when it comes to fighting I don't know what you call them, the revolutionaries, the rebels. Patriots is kind of a bit of a dated term. Naughty scamps. Let's go naughty scamps. My uh, (laughs) former PhD supervisor used to say that the difference between uh, the American patriots, so-called, and the loyalist Americans was how they pronounced either patriot or patriot. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a bit of a dated term. But anyway, we'll just go with revolutionaries for that. Yeah. If the truth was here, he'd be go full on with traitor, wouldn't he, Marcus? <laughs> oh yeah, to, to the king. Um, so before that, they're fighting uh, the, the Native Americans, the indigenous people, and the French. Which is well, this is our last of the Mohicans territory, but either the book, which is very good, or you know Daniel Day Lewis film, epic music. Um, is that the origins of the British Light Infantry? Uh, just about yes. Some people claim that. Uh, because before the Seven Years' War, you had uh, British forces in the Highlands of Scotland, where I am, uh, suppressing the Jacobite Rebellion of 1745. And there are some historians claim that the origin of the idea of light infantry comes from that period where you would need sort of less um, cumbersome units that were able to patrol the Highlands, which at that period were kind of a colonial frontier in their own sense. Uh, but, yeah, the Seven Years' War is really where you see the emergence of uh, a regular light infantry formations in the British Army. Uh, you see some of it in Europe, actually, so it's not just an American experiment. Uh, you have uh, all sorts of European developments with uh, Frederick the Great creates Jaegers, sort of the, the Prussian light infantry. Uh, you have 
the Russians utilize Cossacks, um, the Austrians have Grenzers. So this concept of light infantry, these uh, sort of more independent-minded troops that can be used to skirmish and harass against the enemy, that exists in Europe. Uh, and the British do learn from that to an extent because they are fighting in Europe alongside the Russians. Uh, but it really is in North America where the terrain is more hostile, uh, where they learn basically off the colonists, so people like uh, Robert Rogers, Rogers Rangers, uh, and off their enemies, so the Canadian, French, and uh, Native Americans who are masters of this sort of thing. And British realize they have to utilize the same tactics if they're going to go toe-to-toe with them, and they do pretty effectively. Can I ask you, before we get into the the sort of deep dive on the subject with you, just for listeners that aren't au fait with this period and what we're talking about, what is the difference between normal infantry and light infantry? Why are they being labelled differently? And like you said, it's, it's all down to carrying less cumbersome equipment. But what are the differences between the two? That's a good question. I mean, it's kind of interesting because later on, you can maybe get into the fact that it's a bit, a bit of a blurred line. Um, so tactically, line infantry would be expected to skirmish. So basically, they, in a period where warfare is two lines, you know, having at each other, uh, light infantry are going to be moving around in looser formations, kind of acting independently. Um, they're ideal for fighting in woodlands and stuff. So that's, you know, it's useful in North America. Uh, there's a few sort of particular distinctions. So light infantry are, on paper, they're expected to be uh, quite short, which is kind of uh, the opposite of their brother company in the regular regiments, which is the Grenadiers, who are expected to be over six foot. So the infantry are drawn from the shorter men. They're supposed to be excellent marksmen, so the best shots. They're supposed to have a sort of an independent streak because um, obviously militaries in this period are quite heavily regulated by their officers. But light infantry have to operate out with normal command structures if they're sort of off in the woods gallivanting. So the men are expected to be able to act sort of independently. Um, and they have to have really good stamina because they have some crazy, ridiculous sort of marches um, to catch the enemy unawares, laying ambushes and all that sort of stuff. I think one light infantry officer in the revolution mentioned that his unit marched 60 miles in 24 hours which I thought would be barely humanly possible, but I'm informed by a very uh, fit friend that actually that is possible. But yeah, it's... Uh, so yeah, they have to have good stamina. So overall... Kind Long of way with your back. It's not yeah. possible, but definitely not desirable. Absolutely not. <laughs> I, I couldn't do it, but uh, apparently they're good, so yeah. No Gore-Tex boots and uh, North Face gilets. They're just... Uh, <laughs> But this is, is this where we start to see the emergence of um, what I, I term uh, modern time pairs farm manoeuvre, but we see them operating in, in twos. Uh, we see, do we see them lying down, which is radical? I, I'm thinking, again, last in the Mohicans, you've got the line standing there firing into the, the ambushes and they miss. And then you've got, you know, Sharp and Waterloo, they're all standing in line. Apart from our favourite Richard Sharp, who runs forwards in the 95th, of course. Um, but everyone else is kind of standing around. So I'll be seeing them now develop into some sort of independent tactics. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, there is there is fire and mover, sort of the double pairs, one fires, one reloads. Um, I sadly haven't got the instructions for that to hand, but it's interesting seeing how they would spell it out. Um, one officer said that uh, if you're in the light infantry, it might all come down to the importance of a single well-placed shot, which is... Uh, dramatic but uh true i suppose um there is kind of this misconception especially with the american revolution that the british you know they're all very proper and they uh march into battle with wonderful uniforms and in neat rows and they can't possibly deal with the uh sniping crafty americans um who are too clever but uh, that's not true at all you know the the actual reality is the british knew what this type of warfare was like from the seven years war and modified really their entire tactical doctrine in order to help deal with this idea of irregular warfare where you would not stand in lines um, and you would fire and maneuver, as you said. Am I, so, because this is not my period at all, so am I understanding it correctly then that the reason we're looking at the evolution of the light infantry, is this down to um, adapting to fighting in like a vast arena in America and 
inhospitable um, and sort of just it's the back end of nowhere at this time, isn't it? Pretty, pretty much. Um, there's sort of a coda has to be added to that a little bit because in the Seven Years' War, it's a conflict between the British held colonies and the French held colonies. And that conflict therefore takes place on the frontier wilderness because, you know, that's the space in between them. So that's naturally where they end up fighting. In the revolution, it occurs more in the heartlands of the actual colonies. Obviously, it's an uprising throughout the colonies. So you do have fighting in sort of more settled areas. If you look at the first battle of the war, Lexington and Concord, they're basically having a running street fight through various towns and villages, um, going out to Lexington and then back to Boston, uh, where you know there's loads of buildings along that route. Uh, but generally, yes, there's there's a lot of wilderness. Uh, it's not settled. It's a lot of sort of woodland, forest, mountains, and that sort of environment is not ideal for regular form tactics. But that's why you have a light infantry. So going off that um, equipment, so are they adapting their equipment uh, to fight in this territory? And especially, I really want to know uh, about rifles. Obviously, uh, of course you do. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but. It, there's something that has been read a lot recently is uh, the 95th rifles, the first ones would be armed with Baker rifles. And I often read, no, that's not true. You know, the 60th rifles, the first British Army unit to be armed with rifles. But I was reading about Ferguson and a few others. So is that not quite the full picture? Are they, are some of them, because you mentioned a single well-placed shot. Mm-hmm. Is that that we're getting, you know, rather than a smooth barrel, which I always think of as a bit of like a tennis ball out of a drain pipe. A rifle puts a spin on the bullet, yep. a little quarter turn, a bit like the opening scene of James Bond. You see those grooves, and you can actually shoot where you're going. Is that Are we seeing some of those in North America in the 1700s? Yes, absolutely. So uh, the interesting thing about this conflict is it sees the first ever development of a standard-issue British rifle for the British Army. Uh, so you mentioned Ferguson, uh, Patrick Ferguson, uh, Scott who ends up commanding a unit of American loyalists, and he's a bit of an inventor, and he invents uh, a repeating rifle. So it's um, not, doesn't involve a ramrod. Uh, you load it at the base of the breech, and uh, that obviously would increase the rapidity of fire uh, exponentially. It does have flaws in so much as the breech is not particularly well sealed, so it's prone to jamming and clogging and all sorts of stuff like that which means that ultimately it's a bit of a failed experiment, but he equips his 100 loyalists with that weapon. It's kind of a bit of a bugbear because a lot of people talk about the Ferguson rifle because it is really interesting. You know, it's a clever invention. It's uh, about 100 years before its time, more or less. Uh, but it doesn't really have much of an impact on the war because, as I said, it's about 100, 100 soldiers get equipped with it and they only use it for a couple of years, I think, because uh, it doesn't really stand up to the rigors of hard campaigning. But the, uh, the 1776 pattern uh, British Army rifle is specifically uh, ordered by the government in 1776 because they realize what's going on in America and how Americans have access to a lot of rifles. Uh, so they order a thousand of these to be produced. It's based on a uh, German design. And these rifles are then disseminated uh, five to every light infantry company and five to every uh, squadron of light dragoons. So every British regiment now has the capacity to match American riflemen in combat, which, again... It changes things quite a bit. Yeah, absolutely. That's quite a technological leap forwards. Yeah, yeah. And I like to argue, you know, I think more research needs to be done. But, you know, this idea that, oh, the Americans have rifles, the the revolutionaries have rifles, and, you know, they were far superior to to the smoothbore muskets. I think it's possible when you take into account that uh, there were American loyalists and also most of the Native Americans uh, sided with the British, in reality, the pro-British government forces of the revolution had more rifles than the revolutionaries. Um, when you factor well, that's in, really different. That's, that's the opposite to what we see in that terrible film, The Patriot. Um, <laughs> I knew that was going to come up. <laughs> Championed by one of our Down the Pub regulars as the best film ever made as a joke, and I still haven't forgiven him. But it still um, didn't come last, poor Dust Boot. Uh, <laughs> I, I like um, to think that everything I've done for the past decade has been an attempt to refute just the Patriot. I've, I've got a new phrase, it's called de Gibsonizing history. 
I can't. I used it in something the other day because I was talking about uh, it wasn't the Patriot dude and it wasn't Braveheart. Oh, I was Gallipoli, um, and I said like certain aspects of history now need de-Gibsonizing, and that <laughs> is definitely one of them. You know, you're saying that. Um, so this is the British are very used to standing in lines. Like I'm thinking, no, I'm thinking of a much better film in Last of the Mohicans. So they're, they're standing in lines, which always baffled me when I was a kid. Like, why did they just stand there and wait to get shot? But that's what the British are used to, and that's what the British have been taking all over the planet. So do they fail? at irregular warfare is it so alien to them that they're rubbish at it uh, uh only occasionally normally okay. they deal with it pretty well so uh, again because of the seven years war they realize things are not going well uh last the Mohicans, uh you know you see the famous ambush scene where they get jumped by all the native americans uh, that sort of thing isn't really happening by the the time of the revolution that's for sure um the whole concept of the fighting in lines thing, it's, it's not just a British thing, it's just sort of tactically how the technological era uh, caused armies to fight. And it's interesting because a lot of modern historians are actually saying that the American Revolution wasn't won by the revolutionaries. Um, it's going to go down well on that side of the pond. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't run by the revolutionaries because they were good at guerrilla warfare and the British were bad. It was actually won by the revolutionaries because the Continental Army became really good at regular fighting. So at the start of the war, the Continental Army, when they go toe-to-toe with the British in formed lines, get pasted. But over the years, they slowly improve, they become more disciplined, they become more experienced, and by the end, they can fight British regulars in lines, toe-to-toe, and 50% of the time, they'll win. Uh, so I don't think that actually the whole you know, standing in lines and getting shot at is really an issue for the British because they do adapt. They have, uh, apart from light infantry, they have all sorts of Native American allies who, again, uh, are used to this kind of warfare. Uh, Loyalist Americans who also fight, uh, can fight in this irregular style. Um, I think it's just been overplayed by history because it's kind of like a cool thing. And it's also interesting that a lot of the idea about how uh, the revolutionaries win through guerrilla warfare. It comes about from the 1960s and 70s when Vietnam was going on. Mm-hmm. There's a theory that uh, American historians of that period were looking at Vietnam and saying, oh, well, actually, this is this must have precedent. You know, this is really working very well against us. This must have been what we did back in 1775, uh, whereas in reality, uh, it's only a part of the picture. How does this change things? Like, So we do actually get pitch battles, we do actually not. So we've got these guys going out ranging, um, skirmishing, ambushing, but the Americans form up a continental army, a proper force, I believe, blue coats with white facings, and they march onto the battlefield. How do the light infantry tactics impact actually when they're coming to stand next to each other? I'm thinking of battles like Brandywine. Talk us through what the light infantry do there, if you could. Uh, yeah, so the, the Continental Army is basically formed because the revolutionaries realize that they need uh, legitimacy. You know, if they want to be a, an independent country, an independent country has a standing army, usually just a small one. So they decide they have to have a force that can actually sort of represent regular armed forces, uh, obviously led by George Washington. And they engage the British in fairly numerous battles. And uh, without trying to sound biased, they lose a lot of them. Um, they love to try. But yeah, Brandywine is, is one of the major engagements between uh, Washington and General Howe in command of the British. And uh, Howe is a poor strategist, but a good tactician. And at Brandywine, he pins Washington's attention uh, with a smaller force and then flanks rounds uh, to the sides and kind of delivers a hammer blow from the opposite direction. And that flanking movement is led by uh, the light infantry, who are normally the vanguard for these sorts of things. They're out front. Uh, it does help to highlight their skills as skirmishers because the terrain they end up fighting through is pretty sort of disjointed. There's lots of trees and gullies and rocks, uh, and they end up engaging a continental line units in kind of the reverse of this popular image of the British in rows and the Americans skirmishing. Uh, the Continental Army in that fights are in ranks, all lined up, and the light infantry are operating sort of in little pockets, little groups running around, uh, engaging where they have to, falling back where they have to, um, displaying the sort of independence that makes them effective troops because they don't operate. Uh, they're in battalions, so 
it's you know 10 companies of light infantry but they don't fight as a single block uh, companies are allowed to kind of go off on their own initiative uh, depending on how things are going and the sort of terrain they're fighting in so they engage this continental army line uh, sort of very fluidly rather than just going toe to toe and they end up more or less decimating them and winning the battle I heard an anecdote, and you can tell me if it's true, that at this battle, some of, we mentioned Major Ferguson earlier with his breech-loading rifles, and his men spot at least one officer in a flamboyant uniform and ask for permission to open fire and basically snipe, using a more modern term, and pick off the enemy officers. And uh, Ferguson apparently says no, it's not very gentlemanly, and that could have been George Washington. Is that... You know, that would have been not only battle-changing, that would have changed the course of history. So is, is there truth yeah. in that? Oof. Um, to be honest, <laughs> I couldn't tell you. It does sound like one of those lovely apocryphal little stories. Um, it kind of like, I don't know, it kind of annoys me when you hear stories like that because it promotes this idea that in the 18th century, everyone's all very like, oh, you know, it's all about honour and yeah, yeah. you couldn't possibly do something that would actually then win us the battle or the war if it's dishonourable, which isn't was the case you know fighting in the 18th century is nasty but uh it could be true ferguson was famously extremely honorable um yeah could have changed everything there but but that's what happens i think (laughs) there's a story of it could actually have been brandywine uh where i think it was germantown where general howe the british commander uh, has a pet dog a little dog i can't remember the the species but uh, he, he gets lost during the battle and the revolutionaries actually capture the dog and they realize whose dog it is and George Washington sends it back with a note saying sorry for capturing your dog here it is <laughs> I thought you were going to say they killed the dog and I was like it's one thing to traitor against the king it sounds like the kind of propaganda just invented to make him sound great like oh it's nice to puppies as a non-dog person I'm completely unmoved by that story yeah. <laughs> Um, Alex Scott, no, bastards. Yeah. <laughs> we were talking about honour. Um, Brandywine's one battle that the British absolutely trounced the colonial army, don't they? And then we've got, correct my pronunciation here, Powley. And this is completely different. This is where the light infantry are going in at night with bayonets, with knives, and they come across the Americans and, well, what do they do, basically? That's, what is this so different? Yes, that's interesting because it's sort of the idea, if it was modern day, we'd sort of call it special operations or something like that. You know, it's a nighttime raid over a fairly uh, long distance where they they don't actually catch the Americans completely by surprise. Um, They get some warning beforehand, but they're very much unprepared. And it's the sort of thing where, you know, if you're going in and attacking an enemy who's sort of unprepared and it's dark and it's all a bit confusing... That's the sort of situation where prisoners don't often get taken because it's all a bit chaotic and you worry that if you start taking prisoners, then, you know, they might try and escape or they might turn on you amidst the chaos. So it's one of several incidents where uh, British forces sort of commit potentially an atrocity. They try and play it up. That is, the revolutionaries try and play it up as a massacre afterwards, whereas the British say it's just of an effective military operation, you know, it was, um, there's nothing particularly unusual about it. And to be honest, I don't think it's particularly unusual during the period, you know, that sort of thing happens, not regularly, but it's not unknown. Uh, It's a case of, well, actually the soldiers, the British light infantry attacked without flints in their muskets because they didn't want any stray shots to give away their approach. So they had to use their bayonets, didn't have any other weapons. And uh, that's where it started to get messy. So that, that's what I was uh, reading. So they're going forwards at nighttime through the mostly through woods. And if anyone's ever tried to walk through woods at nighttime, it is impossible to stay silent. Uh, I remember moving with a, a section of just eight men, and it sounds like a herd of huge elephants like walking through any trees. It is really difficult. And then they're going in with bayonets. So this is kind of, you're probably not going to be doing this with your regular line infantry. They're going to be stomping around, especially if they were marching in line. They just like walk into trees and down ditches. So this is a little bit, like you say, a little bit special. This is picking out these men with, they might be shorter, um, but they might be more intelligent. They might be swift and they might have this extra training. Uh, and, they, and they're going in and they're doing something a bit, bit underhand, or maybe it's not so underhand, you were saying. We just like to think that 
everyone was very honourable, really stiff upper lip, and we're going to wait until 11 o'clock to start fighting. But actually, if the opportunity's there, the light infantry are the ones going to be taking this opportunity? Yeah, definitely. And it's the sort of thing that actually happens on multiple occasions. So a year later, there's what becomes known as the, the Baylor incident or the Baylor massacre, where, again, the light infantry do a forced night march and they come upon... Um, about six barns that are occupied by Continental Army Light Dragoons who are asleep at the time, and they just go from barn to barn, killing them silently with their bayonets. So uh, it's something that they come to excel at, and actually it's so effective that then the Continental Army tries to mimic it. So the Continentals create their own light infantry force, uh, yep, and uh, they they kind of pulled the same trick uh, a year after that. So at Stony Points, they launch an attack. This is American uh, Continental Army Light Infantry uh, using only their bayonets, uh, catch a British garrison at Stony Point by surprise and win probably the best uh, colonial victory of the year there, uh, basically just mimicking what had been done to them over the past two years by the British. It just reminds me of the uh, bit in Blackadder with the spies and Blackadder goes forth. We're doing it, we're like heroic, noble soldiers, and then they start doing it to us, it's like underhand, how dare they? <laughs> <laughs> it's true, yeah. I mean, there's really interesting how much the revolutionary side wins the propaganda war throughout the whole revolution. You know, if they do something nasty, then... It gets covered up or it's just, you know, it's in the name of liberty and freedom. Whereas whenever something bad is done to them by opposing forces, it's really played up. I mean, the Baylor incident that I talked about, uh, they commission an investigation into it and they have people giving testimonies and witnesses talking about how many wounds each individual soldier suffered. You know, some of them are sort of 17, 18, 19 wounds. And it's all sort of forensically displayed uh, again, it's a form of propaganda, but it's extremely effective. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Is the biggest example of that, and I could just be completely Gibsonizing myself here, the, the church that they torch in that film? Yeah, the famous church scene. Um, mm. So that is totally made up. There yeah. was never, I think... There were a couple of churches burned by British forces in the South during the Revolution, but there was no one in them at the time. Mm. Um, the, I heard that there actually were some American patriots, rebels, and they burned a church down, people in it, and they just reversed it. But Maybe. I could imagine them doing that. I mean, there were some horrific massacres against Native Americans uh, by revolutionary forces. There was one... Uh, where revolutionary militia just rounded up. Uh, it was actually a neutral tribe, so they weren't even aligned with the British, but they just rounded up this tribe of about 100 people, put them in a barn, and then they started killing them one by one, like everyone, men, women, and children. And uh, a couple of kids managed to escape, which is how it became known. But, uh, yeah, that was yeah, just insane. Um, but that sort of stuff happened a lot on the frontier, where it gets even more complex because you have the Native American dynamic as not just sort of British versus revolutionaries it's it's a whole sort of messy thing but yeah there was no uh, mass church burning with people inside uh, by the british i'm glad to say earlier on you were talking about we were talking about sneaking through the woods and uh, these kind of pairs and also operating at night so something when i think of the british uniforms at the time you've got either mostly a tricorn hat you've got big hats the coats have actually got tails on them a bit like a gentleman's morning suit or ascot you've got a lot of bags and coats and uh, water bottles and bread bags do they adapt any of this for the light infantry 
Yeah, and then, I mean, the adaptions are so successful that they end up actually employing those changes throughout the army quite frequently. Uh, so the uh, skirts that you mentioned on the coats are often reduced or cut down. Um, sometimes they even just take the waistcoat that they would have underneath the jacket and sew sleeves because it's a sleeveless waistcoat. They just slow sleeves onto that and wear that as the coat um, rather than the more cumbersome, heavy, heavy version. Uh, hats get sort of changed. So uh, Burgoyne's expedition in 1777, they do away with the, the tricorn and just have sort of um, <clears throat> less wide brims, uh, felt or leather hats. Um, officers start doing away with the more extravagant symbols of rank. So they remove gorgettes, for example, and they wear less fancy lace. And it's notably effective because I think one of the first battles of the war, Bunker Hill, the officers suffer disproportionately a huge number of casualties. Uh, but that's never really repeated. It's another sort of common trope that all oh, the Americans sniped British officers and because they did that, because they were so cunning and clever and the British didn't know what to do. I don't think actually statistically the British didn't suffer any higher officer casualties than any other conflict during this period, um, except for that initial fight at Bunker Hill where afterwards they start removing these symbols of rank that mark them out. So they're being practical about it and they're introducing these changes. So they get rid of some of these extra bits that mark them out as officers. They kind of look a little bit more like their, their men. Do any of them carry muskets? Do any of them, because we always think a British officer is waving with his sword from a distance going, shoot over that way. Yeah. Um, apart from going back to our, our favourite friend, Richard Sharp, who's the only one, according to Bernard Cornwell. Uh, that's <laughs> not the case in the peninsula. But... I'm, I'm going back and I'm like, I've still got this preconception that in the 1700s, the officers are all gentlemen. Uh, okay, the men are sneaking in and bayonetting people at night, so maybe they're not honourable gentlemen. But are they Are they joining in? Are they firing? Are they, are they protecting themselves with muskets? Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, maybe not honourable gentlemen, um, one of the, the incidents I mentioned earlier, the Baylor Massacre, uh, the revolutionary eyewitnesses that survived say that actually the light infantry, when they took prisoners, the, the regular enlisted men were saying to the officers, we've got these prisoners, what should we do with them? And the officers are the ones saying, kill them. So, uh, that's, that's that's yeah, that's an interesting twist. But yes, uh, British light infantry officers were armed with firearms. They were armed with fusils, uh, which is basically, um, well, first off, they're a private weapon. So the officer buys his own fusil. He's not sort of issued it. It's not a mass market type weapon. Uh, and normally, okay, so I'm going to join the light infantry, I need to go into London by myself uh, exactly. a musket. Exactly. Okay. So, uh, they tend to be a bit lighter than a regular musket, but as a common misconception, they're shorter, which they're not always. Uh, so that right. lets an officer basically join in in the fighting. There's some, yeah. there's some complaints in so much as people say, well, an officer shouldn't be fighting, he should be leading. You know, he should be, instead of thinking about loading and taking aim and all that sort of stuff, he should be thinking about the actual wider battle. But I think with light infantry, because they, because of their role as skirmishers and being scattered as they are often in woodland and stuff like that, it's a good idea for an officer to have a, a firearm. So yeah, they would all be equipped with one. So we've got specialist hats, specialist coats. We've got officers with firearms fighting. Do we see any of them wearing green? Bit of camouflage, bit of ninety fifth jacket. Do we do we see this? this emergence of some sort of blending into their surroundings? Um, so interestingly, we see that in the Seven Years' War, uh, one of the light infantry units raised swapped their red coats for brown, so everything they have is brown. And they even brown their muskets and change their buttons to black so they don't shine. Nothing uh, shiny. Yes. Nothing in the Revolution, so the Loyalist Americans, their standard uniform is actually green. Um, so uh, Simcoe and Tarleton and all his men, uh, loyalist officers, they all wear green. The British, off the top of my head, I don't think they have any units that wear green in the regular army, but there is, I think it's generally understood, especially when it comes to fighting in like Canada and stuff, that it makes sense to not wear red. <laughs> it is so we always see them in those highly like shiny red coats in that, but the reality is very different, isn't it? By the time they wore them everywhere in that. They oh, absolutely. More yeah. a, a faded pink colour. 
Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, I hate seeing in films and stuff where they all have like pristine uniforms and like powdered hair and all that sort of stuff. Whereas in reality, um, I mean, I was reading just last week that one light infantry officer did not take his clothes off for 10 weeks because mm. he was like the campaign he was on was so intensive. Like he didn't even, you know, change his shirt. He was wearing his clothes, like sleeping in them. He said he had his fusel with him constantly because they were constantly under the threat of being attacked. So yeah, I think the reality of uh, 18th century uniforms is they were pretty grimy and a bit threadbare. I mean, he's, this is before Lynx Africa's invented. Yeah. So, <laughs> he is gonna, you're gonna see. Yeah. Africa in the morning wasn't going on in the American Revolution. <laughs> this yeah. is groundbreaking research. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You are gonna smell that man for quite a way. Yeah, it's uh, between the actual bad, like BO, and people's terrible teeth. I think those are the two main things that people don't appreciate yeah. about the past. If you went back in time, lots mm. of nasty teeth and lots of bad smells. Is it Nelson and the Argumentman? There's that legend that um, that came that ship came back in once, and that it could you could smell it on the other side oh, while man. it was still on the other side of the Isle of Wight. That's amazing. I can yeah. imagine. <laughs> Nelson, you have just got one man smelling. You've got something like 500 men working together. Yeah. Absolutely. Thinking. No two Yeah. It's going to be horrendous, the thought of it. And I mean, from what I believe of the 1800s, they were issued normally two shirts, um, two trousers, one jacket, and that lasts them until next year's supply. So you've got 12 months to wear the same jacket. It's going to, they say, they're not going to be pristine looking like toy soldiers. They're going to have holes in the sleeves and probably missing another elbow. And uh, it's just going to look really raggedy by the time they get back, especially if they're going through. In North America, is full of really thick forest with thorns and brambles, and it's going to get torn, it's going to get ripped. It's, it's, it's wood, isn't it? It's, it's not built to last. Yeah, yeah, they were definitely a raggedy bunch. I mean, you see it a lot with uh, art depictions of the Continentals, often show them sort of threadbare and Valley Forge, no shoes, all that sort of stuff, because I think they like to play up the underdog idea. But the British were just the same with supply problems. And, yeah, they would look nothing like the parade standard that we'd normally see. People don't realise that when you see portraits of officers from this period, it's literally, it's a portrait. It's meant, it's designed to show the officer looking at his best in his best uniform. Whereas in reality, you know, that's not how they would look in the field. Um, I know we're going to wind you up and let you go in a minute uh, on our favourite subject, which is how shit Mel Gibson is. But before <laughs> we do that, I know Marcus wants to know about the impact. What is the sum total of the impact um, for his period? So we've looked at your period and we know that by his period, you've got Richard Sharp and you've got the 95th and that. But how do we get from one to the other? Yeah, so the army actually forgets a lot of its lessons from the revolution. Um, there's a faction, there's a bit of a, a war within the British high command after the revolution ends. There's this fear that the fighting style of America with the skirmishing and the loose order and uh, people kind of acting independently would not work in Europe against uh, an army that was you know, well-disciplined and formed up. So that if they then ended up at war with France, as they do, uh, it would be better to mimic the Prussian style of fighting, which is very much the sort of regimented everyone's in a line idea. So... Ultimately, the, the Prussian faction, if you will, won the battle for the heart and soul of the army in the decade after the revolution. But the lessons for the light infantry specifically aren't completely forgotten. So you have uh, Sir John Moore, of course, who was an officer during the revolution and fought in the revolution, a very junior officer. Um, he took lessons he'd learned from the style of fighting in America, and you get Sean Cliff and all that sort of stuff. Um, other units like the 60th, uh, the Royal Americans become a rifle-only unit. Um, I think the realisation of how effective the rifle was was down a lot to the fighting in America. I mean, Napoleon famously disses the rifle and says it's not suitable as like a mass weapon. Uh, but the British have seen how effective it can be in North America, and that's why you get units like the Magnetron. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say, yes, Sir John, Sir John Moore, who's, I mean, he's famous for his burial poem, uh, which we covered in one of the, in the one of the Sharks uh, reunions. We finished off with a, a little reading from Ali of that poem, mm. which is really nice. But he's saying if he makes he makes Wellington look good um, by his retreat. But he's he's there as a junior officer. And do you think he he learned from these? 
So when he became a senior officer, he was like, actually, those men, they did, they did good. <laughs> so what I want to do is go and get more of that and bring it back. And there's a gap. Isn't that experimental core riflemen's 1800? So we've got a gap of what 20 years, and uh, there's a bit of knowledge loss. But do you think that's that's where he's taking the ideas? He's put them in his back pocket for a while, and he's he's bringing them back out at Shawncliffe on the south coast. Yeah, I think so. I think it's it's just a continuation from in the revolution. You have senior officers who were junior officers in the Seven Years' War, so previous the revolution taking their experience into the revolution and then when you come to the Napoleonic period you have senior officers who were junior officers in the revolution so it's uh, sort of that learns uh, experience that carries over from one conflict to the next and even if um, on paper the British army didn't really it didn't really seem to capitalize on what it had learned in America individual officers like Moore did and eventually that shines through when you have Obviously, a highly effective light infantry. I think it's a full division by the Peninsula War. Um, by the end, it is. It's, it's the full division of um, yeah, light infantry, light division, uh, with the 60th Rifles interspersed, one company per brigade, if they could, uh, throughout the army. So people are learning. And something that we hadn't actually covered was the, the makeup um, of the regiments. By this point, every regiment's got a light company. So a tenth of your strength can go and do this skirmishing thing, which is something as a Napoleonic historian and um, being extra geeky, we've already talked Warhammer, I do reenactment as well, um, super geeky. Um, we, we get, we've got 95th rifles and 60th rifles, but you've actually got light companies can go forwards. And so all of a sudden, by the time you reach Waterloo, you've got a screen of light infantry in front of anybody. Um, Sharp, he's part of a light company in the South Essex Regiment. But they actually have that until, you know, the Seven Years' War. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting as well, because in the Peninsula you have, uh, or at least by Waterloo, you have entire regiments of light infantry, don't you? So mm. the 52nd are light infantry regiments. Yeah, 43rd are the 52nd and the 1st, and then during that time they're converting people like the 68 Durhams, and yeah, uh, yeah they're, they're converting more and more uh, yeah. through the period. I think they just started to break up and go, we need this. And it's very interesting that didn't, well, I always think it didn't happen before. Why did they not see this? And it turns out they did, and then they just kind of, some people forgot about it. Yeah, kind of. Uh, it's an interesting development with the entire battalions of light infantry because they did that in the revolution, but they went about it in a different way. So you had one company per battalion was light infantry company. And what they did was they drafted those companies, removed them from their parent regiments and formed a composite battalion made up of the companies of loads of different regiments. Uh, and then they could conduct these special operations like Powley and uh, be generally effective on, on the battlefields. That was a bit, it had a downside because it obviously means you've taken those companies away from their parent regiment, so that regiment's a bit under strength and it doesn't have access to light infantry. So clearly when it comes to sort of the peninsula, it's, they've realized that, well, actually, instead of just harvesting the companies from different regiments, we should just form regiments of light infantry as a basis and then they can operate effectively. So. Because taking away a company, there's there's ten companies in a battalion. Uh, one was already Grenadiers. You mentioned the tallest, the strongest men. So then they're converting one of their other nine companies left. So they're losing potentially a tenth of their strength to go off and do these these ranging, these skirmishing, these ambushes. So that would affect yeah the battalion commanders who might not like that. Yes, exactly. Um, I think that's the case. But they they solved that problem, I guess, by the Napoleonic periods where they they have their own regiments like infantry. It really gives different backgrounds to the Napoleonic and the Peninsula War and even the Revolutionary Wars that we'd think that they're only fighting in line and they're, and they're breaking new grounds by doing line-free tactics. And Richard Sharp's the first person to go off ranging with his own weapon. And actually, they're not even a full generation before. They are doing this in America. Yeah, I think so. I think it's, it's interesting to highlight that. I think you mentioned at the start that this isn't, Especially in Britain, the revolution is not a particularly uh, popular topic, uh, maybe because we lost. But uh, I think recently there has been a lot of interest in the British side of the revolution. It's not just sort of the American story now. Uh, I mean, American historians and authors as well are doing loads of really good interest, uh, good research into how the British fought the war and coming up with the fact that actually they went about it pretty effectively. It was 
the issues were far more strategic than they were tactical. And when you come down to the sort of battlefield level, uh, you have this light infantry component basically uh, playing the revolutionaries at their own game. Yeah, I mean, you say we lost, but George Washington was a British officer, slightly treacherous British officer. So in a way, we just kind of, we won and we lost all at the same time because it was one of our own. So we can exactly. we can take a win there. Only our own. Right, okay. I'm going to let you do What we're going to do here is something a bit, a bit unusual, but um, I think it could be quite fun. Yeah, let's de-Gibsonise the American Revolution. Tell us what's wrong with the Patriot. Oh, There's a whole God. episode on Braveheart, so it's only fair that you get to rip it. I mean, as a Scot, I would also do something on Braveheart, but uh, I'll leave that one at the door. Uh, I mean, I could talk for hours about the Patriot, not in a good way. It's just the idea that... I mean, for a start, he's uh, South South Carolina, sort yeah. of like landed gentleman, and supposedly his slaves are all free people working his lands, and he's paying them. That's just That just, like takes the piss out of actual American history. Mm. You know, this idea that he would somehow be this noble guy that is, uh, doesn't have slaves on his plantation. That's literally a plantation he has. Um, and that's just that side of it. In terms of the actual like military history, my God, you know, it's like sniping from behind trees and catching out these dumb Brits who just don't know how to fight in woodlands and are so easily outwitted. And, you know, it's good fairy tale stuff, but, uh, when they then compound it by doing things like the church burning scene. I've read that the actual church burning scene was meant to be in um, Saving Private Ryan because the producer for The Patriot was the same producer on Saving Private Ryan. And they were going to have a scene in that where the SS burn a bunch of civilians in a church, which they did do historically, but they never got around to using that scene. So the producer was like, ah, I'll just stick it in the next film. Mel Gibson, who famously seems to hate the British for whatever reason, uh, has taken a scene written for the Waffen SS, yes. where the Waffen SS yes. kill a load of civilians and writes as British officers. Exactly. Yeah, that's literally what happened. Wow. So that just and worse than that, he has a character based upon somebody I think that you and I talk about a bit. Do it. The only good thing about the Patriot is Jason Isaacs. Uh, he is. Just a delicious baddie. He overacts it, hams it up. It is fantastic. Yeah. But he's playing um, a fictional character that's basically Tarleton, this uh, kind of brilliant cavalry commander. Yeah. You'd say oh. he's one of the he's one of the good guys almost. Uh, definitely, he's uh, one of my uh, history favourites. He uh, was an exceptional cavalry commander, probably the best of either side during the war. Um, he won you know, a whole string of battles. The most famous because he'd lost his one big battle at Cowpens, uh, which is, again, the basis for a lot of the fighting in the Patriot. But overall, he was kind of just a really interesting guy. He was pretty young. He was very much a sort of go-getter. He was always gambling. He was into the ladies. He was kind of rakish. Um, yeah, he actually, this is a fun fact, he was supposed to command in the peninsula. Um, ahead of Wellington. They were thinking about him, and then in the end they decided to take a punt on this fairly young officer from the 33rd uh, instead, and uh, Wellington gets the job, which, you know, is probably for the best, because ain't no one going to beat Wellington. But uh, at that point, Tarleton was, you know, in his 50s and a, a general, but I'm not sure he would have been well-suited to uh, fighting the French in Spain. But in America, when he's sort of hunting down uh, revolutionary militia and stuff, he's a very effective He's, the, he's charging out swamps, isn't he, with cavalry and light infantry coming in? Yeah. All sorts of shenanigans, uh, but not, I should add, uh, doing crazy, brutal stuff like burning churches full of civilians. Uh, his one battle that he is kind of infamous for, Waxhaws, uh, which is called the Waxhaws Massacre, uh, he actually is leading the charge. His horse gets shot, and he ends up trapped beneath his horse. And by the time he gets out, uh, it's all over because it's just a cavalry charge that just breaks the infantry line and obviously a lot of people get killed because it's a cavalry charge that just broke the infantry line. But again, speaking of propaganda from the war, the revolutionaries use this and call it a massacre and say that he's massacred all these people and it's effective because they get loads of new recruits throughout the southern colonies when that happens. So you can see why they've done it, but it's, yeah, his, this idea of him as a butcher is just totally invented. So apart from Jason Isaac's acting, and I think we get a couple of very overused gifs on uh, social media from the film. Is there anything good in The Patriot? Well, 
the costumes and the uniforms are kind of good and bad. So if you want to say this is what your average British, your continental army soldier, or even civilian looked like during the revolution, that's correct. And then they don't factor in the realities of campaigning. So as we've already said, they would have been muddy, threadbare, um, all that sort of stuff. So no, it's like a perfect perm, doesn't he? It's like yeah, time. exactly. <laughs> yeah, in terms of like the the lace and like the colors and all that stuff, it's correct. Like it's actually pretty good. The costume department in fact, have clearly done a lot of research and got that correct. And then it doesn't sort of go the next step and make it accurate, like properly accurate in terms of what it would have looked like. So I guess, you know, you can't really fault the film too much of that sort of stuff. Uh, so yeah, Patriot, I will give it a small tick for costumes. Costume development. Uh, that's about it. <laughs> Brilliant. Robbie, thank you so much for coming on to well, talk you. about the American Revolution and the development of light infantry. Uh, plug your book for us. Uh, yeah, so Osprey Publishing, uh, British Light Infantry and the American Revolution. It's available on the Osprey website and Amazon and just online in general if you Google it. Uh, now, yeah. Marcus, is it not available on our book page? We are going to have it. Bernie's going to have it on our book page. So if anyone uh, goes to the History Hack bookshop, uh, they'll be able to link straight through. I think it might even be our first Osprey in there. Uh, I got it on Saturday. Uh, loads of really lovely illustrations. Uh, photographs from uh, American reenactors who are reenacting these measurements you haven't really heard of. And if you like hats, I mean, these hats, <laughs> like there are things in here that ladies at Ascot beware. Gentlemen <laughs> 1970s, they've got it. They know it. No, great book. Um, strongly recommends as uh, Osprey is always welcome on any uh, history bus uh, bookshelf. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life is going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.